This is Kaya Drive with Seasway on Kaya 959. Okay. Now, everything you've just said to me, right? Yeah. yeah. Let's me know that you take this very seriously as a craft. Yeah. And so perhaps you are not as blasé as you may try lead us to believe, <laughs> right? It's not just a matter of, uh, I wake yeah. up, I have fun, and then yeah. I make people laugh, right? Yeah. Because the first question I wanted to ask you, mm. and I just wanted to wait until this moment, <laughs> if you didn't feel that you were funny, how would you have been comfortable to get people to pay for your non-funniness? Like, if I didn't think I was good at radio, mm. right, and I didn't think this show was worth listening to, I'd feel very bad for the fact that Kaya pays me, first of all, to be here, and I'd also feel even worse for the fact that people sit and they lend me three at, hours at, of their time. At the, at the height of that feeling was when I was doing a lot of uh, one-man shows that I've recorded and never released, is I want to entertain doing free shows. Mm. And everyone around me told me, it's crazy. It's, it's insanity because it will collapse the market. Mm. Because you can't just say to people, come. And I said, okay, c- they can pay and then they'll get their money back. They said, no, it doesn't work like that. It, that's, that shows you how much guilt I felt at showing up somewhere and knowing that what I do, I would do absolutely for free and to anybody and for anybody, but people paid for it. And I feel like that level of commitment that, that all the guys that started comedy at Horror Cafe back then, and I'm, I'm talking about Trevor, uh, Gumbi, uh, Noah, and uh, Gidiboni, all of us, we came from that school. We, we loved it so much that we would wait outside Horror Cafe for taxis to come at about 12 midnight and we still had to get to Pretoria or Midrand. That's how much, and we still came back for more. So Dave Kibuka as well. He literally worked for decades almost for free. Yeah, so the the technical aspects of it for us, it was always the fun part. It was the stuff that we would discuss. And when you go to New York comedy clubs and you'd see super famous comics discussing those things over a beer, then you're like, oh my goodness, I got it wrong. Because I always thought if you're funny enough, you'll become famous. And when you're famous, you'll get money. And when you get money, you become funnier. Mm. But it wasn't the case. In fact, the more famous you become in comedy, the longer it becomes. Because when you do one-man shows, you are by yourself. It's called a one-man show for a reason. Mm. But then when you think of the times at Horror Cafe and you think of the times in Santini, like we were together at Comradery, hearing another guy go before you and then you think, oh, I could have done that better. Then you give them a tip and then they give you a tip and then they go. You've been through our conversations and you listen Mm. to us going on and on about how it could have done. That is not funny. That's technical. There's no jokes about it. It's all technical. So we are all just attracted to the technicality of the trade. Neo on 959 Sexy Love It is car drive on the streets on the air Busy serenading the one and only Eugene Corsa in the studio I think I got him I think I got him (laughs) (laughs) So Uncle T just sent me a text now Yes And uh, he said You've got comedy genius in the studio right now Ah, I'm one of the people that was hurt by a sabbatical. I hope hearing him on air means he's back on stage soon. To which I responded, tomorrow's Yakala. (laughs) As soon, Yakala Ksasa, he's back on stage. But the question is, are you still funny? I I think we've answered that in the previous... You never thought you were funny to begin with? Never thought. Okay, so then I... I have something to say. Oh. Yeah, that's the difference. Yeah. I I feel like I've got something to say. And I was having this debate with a friend of mine. I was saying, the the fortunate part about South Africa right now, and especially after COVID Mm. and pre-COVID, was South Africans got exposed to stand-up comedy at a level 
at a higher rate, at, like Slibs, I like to say, at, at a hyperbolic chamber rate. Mangene la payana, and we're consuming comedy at a fast pace to a point where our audiences now know the genres in comedy. Mm-hmm. Before, they never knew. Yeah. Before, you would get rejected just because you were doing a different style and people would be like, how lucky is it? Just say it like this. They'd be like, no, there's a... <laughs> just because you don't know... It. <laughs> And crowds like doing that after the show. Like, yeah. <laughs> so I think people now have consumed comedy enough to know that there's styles. Yeah. And what uh, COVID forced us to do was face ourselves. So now you find stand-ups that are the thing, the conditions that we have with you guys, friends yeah. of ours outside of stage. Yeah. Now we're having them on stage now. Yeah. We're no longer shy to be contemplative in front of our audiences. Yeah. But before we would come measured, yeah. then left out the crust, and then you're like, okay, tingen, they're fine polished. Yeah. But right now we're just being honest. We're putting ourselves out there. The world is different now yeah. to when last you were on stage. Yeah. Um, I'll use the term woke. Yeah. Even though it's not what I would have ideally liked to have used. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, when you're speaking about social awareness yeah. and social responsibility, people hold you to a higher standard now <laughs> in terms of what you are able to say. Absolutely. Right. Uh, do you find that to be an impediment or do you find that to be a challenge? Uh, I feel and by like challenge, I, I mean I, a good I, one. I, I, I foolproofed myself from being cancelled right now, 13 years later, because my daughter Butle is 13 and she helps me. Yeah from being cancelled because I say things to her and she was like you know if people heard this you'd be cancelled yeah. so my, my cancel radar is fully functional right now but yeah. I, I also feel like we can't be so sensitive that we don't want to hear things that are true Yeah, and that's the difference and when you look at stand up in the world Dave Chappelle can say it one way and then uh, Ricky Gervais can say it another way mm. but they are saying the same thing mm. but Oksalayo, we're going to have to hear what we don't want to hear. And stand up just, uh, unfortunately, it's not a news bulletin. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen by force. Yabon, you're doing it on stage to people that want to hear it. And if they want to hear it, they'll come hear it. If they don't want to hear it, I mean. So I know it's difficult to say this because mm-hmm. you are just a distributor of the material. Yeah. Uh, I <laughs> suppose so well. I would have been, yeah, I would have been <laughs> the consumer if I came to a show, right? Yes, yes. According to your view, what do people come to comedy shows for? Because some people are saying, I mean, I come to laugh. So as you correctly point out, I want my money back and put my hand up. I'm not here to contemplate and pontificate with you. If I wanted to do that, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to do that. I'll <laughs> go speak to a scholar. Yeah, I'll go to speak, speak to a scholar. That's it. You're not going to tell me anything you don't know anyway. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so when, I, when you think about it, yeah. what do you think people come to shows for? People come to shows for validation. Mm-hmm. Stand-up shows are no different from when people go to a medium. Mm-hmm. You go there because you want to hear what your future will sound like. Mm-hmm. You go there because you want to hear if you'll be happier with the choices that you've made. Stand-up is a choice that you make days before the comic even knows what they're going to wear on the day. Mm-hmm. You pay money in advance. You ask someone to come with you. You get dressed. You get in a car. You show up. You find a table. You sit. You get a drink. Th- that Commitment is on a highest level. It has nothing to do with me being funny. Mm. It has everything to do with you being open to new ideas. Mm. That's your commitment. Mm. All I have to do is make sure with Inami, I technically ticked all the right boxes. Mm. I went and got a haircut, put beard oil. You know, I, mm. I arrived on time. My shoes are tied. Mm. And I have something to tell you. Okay. 
Look, if you agree with that, you can give us a shout. Uh, <laughs> but if you disagree, like, hey, pay to me now. You can give us a shout as well. The number zero eight six. Yeah, double zero double zero nine five nine. Matt. Hey, Mr. Ganjan, Bob. Hey, Mr. Kawatila. Ii, nubwa kawatila? Mr. Kawatila, nina. Interview ya, ya kono, no, no, iki, nina zwaga. Nko, no, mto kuluma in the background. Ah, but you can hear us now. So now? Yeah, now I can hear you. Don't worry. I can Yeah. Yeah. Listen, my question is quick and I'm just gonna and why would you say do you feel his preparation is different from any other comedian yeah I, I love Kahiso's mind but wait maybe yes. Matt let me ask this because Eugene and Kahiso have a personal relationship yes where now it sounds to me like you don't consider him funny is that correct who doesn't consider no actually one of your producers I, I had a bit a little bit of a charge with them you know what yeah I think Kahiso is one of the most prolific, most funniest people I've ever seen on stage. Yeah. The one time I saw him at Blacks Only, he was hosting, there was Basket Mouth and everybody else. And then after that, there was David Kau hosting the show most of the time. Mm -hmm. That guy would step on stage without saying anything, just looking at the crowd, make us laugh. Yeah, because that he does look funny. He looked even funnier before he fixed his teeth, even. Before he even opens his mouth, he's already funny. Yeah. Because he would step on stage, look at himself first from toe to head, then look at us, and then start opening his mouth, and we, we, he would kill it. Mm. That is why I specifically picked Kahiso out of here. And I haven't seen Kahiso perform in, a, in, a, in the longest time. Mm. Yeah, well, that is why I specifically chose him to say, I just wanted to hear from Eugene when he talks about being technically prepared and then you step on stage and you don't do the thing. That is why I said, okay. Well, you've answered your side. Let's let Eugene answer his side. <clears throat> I love Kakizo. I think technically he's, he's very sound. He's very measured. He's very smart. He knows what he's doing. And mm. one thing that I learned from Kakizo from when I started doing comedy and spending time with him and talking to him in those brief moments is... You must never let this thing take control of you. He was one person who knew when not to get on stage and when to get on stage. In fact, I think now I match him in the levels of times people ask us, when is your next show? Because <laughs> mm. every time I would hang around him, people would be like, so when is your next show? Now I hear, Eugene, when is your next show? So I'm like, yeah, I learned from him. And his production mind, I think he inspired me in a way to get into production, which is something that I explored only three years ago mm. now. And I'm, and I'm finding joy in it because I understand that visually what I want to see and what technically what people want to see on stage, you know, they kind of have a middle ground and that middle ground is the visual arts. Okay. Now, you know, I like uh, what you just brought up now about, mm. I guess, creating demand for your product. Mm. Because when people see you everywhere all the time, uh, they don't have a chance to miss you. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, uh, and I gather, especially from the first hour conversation, that that was by design, but also by circumstance. You mentioned a tragedy mm. that forced you to look inward and kind of stick to yourself a little bit, mm. right? Mm. Um, tell us about that. Um, five years ago, uh, my son, who was three months old, passed away. 
uh, in his sleep woke up it was nothing mm. uh, went to hospital and that was it and i think from that time my my world stood still mm. i think if it wasn't for my daughter i would have fallen apart and i contemplated doing silly things to myself you know and when i looked at my daughter i thought to myself i can't do this to her mm. at that time i didn't feel funny you know there's one moment mm. in my life the entire time i knew i didn't think i was funny but mm. at this time nothing felt funny nothing felt normal mm. and i felt like a restart i felt like the universe kind of forced me to pause and use those three months that he was alive to give me consciousness and to give me awareness and to appreciate every little moment and then from then onwards i never took anything for granted again and i think i spent the better part of that five years being involved in my daughter's world you know understanding who she is her likes and her dislikes which i think had he been still been around i would have never taken the time to appreciate that kind of stuff with her and then a few years later uh, bob passed away and when bob passed away my my world again fell apart because we hadn't spoken in two years mm. and there was so much i wanted to say to him but i didn't take the time to do it i, I didn't reach out and call him you know mm. and i felt horrible and at on the anniversary of my son's passing which was five years uh, in august last year in the same week a good friend of mine who's been my best friend for the last 11 10 years the guy who got me onto television who got me to go to australia and watch just for laughs comedy moigua passed away mm. then again i thought to myself Sisulu. yes then mm. again i thought to myself this there has to be something you know tragic here happening in my life and what am i not being aware of and i thought to myself i have to start paying attention to people that I care about. I have to text them enough. I have to call them enough. And I have to be present enough. Mm. That presence mm. is where comics usually draw the inspiration to at least observe initially what may then turn out to be funny once they relate it later. Yeah. How present are you in just everyday life? I'm 100% there now. I don't take anything personally anymore. Uh, I also don't keep things, whether materially or... Otherwise, I don't keep things in anymore because I've realized the burden that we sometimes give is to ourselves, you know, and then we look around and we project, why are people always asking me for this? Why do people always demand things from me? It's because you're carrying it around. But right now, I've never felt lighter. And I took the decision to to move away from Gauteng and it's something that I never thought I'd have the courage to do. And I live somewhere else now and I look at the ocean every day. I wake up to it and I go and go walk and catch fish and look at life, you know, and I feel happier. Mm. Afternoon season the team. Yeah, I've got a question to the guest Eugene Cos. What advice he gives to the up and coming comedian, the young ones in the field because the lack of schools around townships here. Yeah, just to give us that uh, answer. Okay, hold on to that. I'll remember it when we come back. Hi CJ, hi team, hi Eugene. Wow man. Uh, I cannot believe I'm hearing from Eugene because I've always been a fan. You know, you guys just spoke about Gafisolitika and Eugene mentioned how he loves his mind. I love your mind, you know, um, and how you deliver your material. You know, just listening to you, I'm I'm so excited. I can't, I can't wait to see. Unfortunately, I won't make tomorrow's show, but I can't wait to hear you and I can't wait what, to hear what kind of material you're going to bring up next. My goodness. And it's true, you know, like life humble you at, at times you know and tragedies um, kind of make you want to take stock of what your life is about and how you are living your life and sorry for all the losses that you've gone through you know but yeah man it can only make you a better person kudos to you um, thanks for the interview oh my god so enlightening um, anyway I can't wait to hear what you have in store 
Uh, before we went to traffic and took the break, somebody asked, what advice do you give to young comics? Just be and, yourself. And I just want to <laughs> add to that as well, because it brings us back to a discussion we had mm-hmm. earlier on about striking while the iron is hot, but we didn't delve deep into it, yeah. right? I don't think it's an exaggeration to say at some point you were definitely the number one comic in the country, right? Uh, when things are going that well and you then take a leave of absence, it creates a vacuum mm. that can be filled by someone else, mm. right? Uh, and then get, with time, obviously things change and you may find yourself grappling to keep up with where it is that you are. And also you find that the industry as a whole has changed, right? Mm. So my view of entertainment in South Africa, it obviously goes through phases, but right now may not be the greatest for domestic entertainers. Mm. International guys, they're killing it. The Black Coffees of the world, mm. Trevor Noah's of the world, Major League Gardens, mm-hmm. you know, even with DJing, there was a time where I knew for a fact, if you're DJing, you're holding at least 15,000 an hour. These days, thousand an hour, easy. These days, if you had the profile, okay. These days, I don't think the rates are that big, and but maybe you you can call and correct me. I haven't been in the club for a long time, right? If somebody were to say you walked away from the game at the peak of your career Mm. and during its heyday, where literally they were throwing money at entertainers, Mm. and you're coming back now where things may not be as rosy, what would you say? I would say comedy is where it was supposed to be 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. The comedy bubble was always going to burst at some point. Because so you agree that you guys are making money hand over fist? Absolutely. Because you'd go to corporates and you'd be like, Anaz in Funan. You guys mm. say you want a comedian, but they actually want me to tell you where the lamb shank is. Mm. So you guys don't know what you're doing. But So a lot of people came into comedy because it was also easy to copy what Americans were doing and do it in Vanek. Mm. Because people were not exposed to comedy. They wouldn't mm. know that the joke was translated. Mannerisms, timing, even the bits themselves, mm. they were translated. And I had this conversation many a time. I said the comedy bubble is going to burst. Mm. And what's going to happen is when the comedy bubble bursts, people will be forced to look at what comedy is because they'll be seeing it from outside. Mm. Then they'll look at inside again and go, and like this was not comedy after all. Mm. And I'm blessed enough now not to be beholden to comedy when it comes to my income. Mm. So I'm not doing it because it fosters my lifestyle, it sponsors my lifestyle. Mm. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it because I love it. That's why I'm able to do a smaller room and do it twice. And because I still feel like I'm not looking at the ticket sales and thinking if those ticket sales go through, they'll be able to afford me. And I feel like, see, I've been given a restart from the gods, man. It feels Mm. like the first time when I started doing comedy, I didn't know I was going to get 60 rand with that handshake or not. So I feel like I'm being tested and I'm being called on my own PS to see if I really love this thing. And I often notice Mm. that comedians, for the most part, bear the most burdens. Mm. Um, The people that we've seen commit suicide because of depression, some of them have been comics. Mm. Uh, And people that were making us laugh literally up until their last day even, Mm. you know? Um, Mr. Robin yeah. um, Robin, Robin Williams, Williams yeah. you know that's the best example that I can think of I would have never thought that that guy is depressed but same same thing uh, what people said about Anthony Bourdain mm. which is my icon I love Anthony Bourdain mm. I love his outlook I love the kind of television that he made he, 
all of it all of his chef friends say he was the jolliest person he was mm. the most helpful person he was very contemplative mm. and he struggled a lot with substance abuse but that didn't stop him from creating great content mm. and what we sometimes don't realize from people who are suffering from depression and mental challenges is they hate making other people feel depressed mm. so it's not a front that they make other people happy mm. they know what it feels like not to be happy so whenever they are around people they try and make them as happy as possible mm. so it's not a it's not a it's not a front and it's not a cover and i often hear and i see when someone has committed suicide and then people have so many things to say about and i'm like you don't understand what they went through i don't think it's an easy decision to take to take yourself away from loved ones mm. especially if you're living a life of torment mentally inside when people around you are saying you've got a great car you've got a great family you've got a nice house and sees you know better than anybody all of those things are just there your house is somewhere now mm -hmm. you are here the car is downstairs mm -hmm. you are here so i'm interacting with you your co-hosts are interacting with you so all of that if someone looks at it and goes sees how can you have a bad day you've got a nice car and a nice house you go you won't understand because you don't have it mm -hmm. but because i am here when i come to the radio show i try to make everyone around me feel an inch of what i feel when i have the things that i've worked so hard for mm. and i guess that's the altruistic part of what we do right we show up for people that are feeling like you know this job was horrible and they get into the car they turn on the radio they hear you you play the music they become reminiscent and they laugh and they that's what you are doing this thing for you're not doing it for the money mm. and i feel like covid called our bs on people who are in the arts i see people now who have been fired on radio shows and i say to myself are you sad because you won't be able to fulfill what you were doing for your audiences because if you were then you're a liar because you can always go online mm. you can always do a podcast if communicating to your fans or people that like you was always the driver then you can always do this thing outside of the station right mm. but if it was about money then be honest with your fans and just understand that also your fans went through a lot during lockdown a lot of people lost a lot mm. and they still had to listen to people who seemed like they were doing well without an ounce of humility or a bit of pity to the anguish that people were going through mm. and i think we just owe the people that a little bit just give it back and so how much of that then um affected your personal mm. and business relationships when you were going through it and you felt like you know what i'm gonna step away for whatever reason yeah because obviously you create an ecosystem around you yes. where people benefit yes uh, and once you take away that benefit some people may feel some type of worry about it. absolutely and people make no bones about letting you know how they feel about losing the benefit that you provide for them but i guess it's something that you need to do they always say once you've been through the hardest part or the one thing that you fear the most you fear nothing anymore mm. And I remember one estate agent once told me, Afrikaans lady, she was like, you know what, Eugene, if you look at the house, nah, you can never build a house that's ultimate. Everyone has built a house that's ultimate and has sold it before. Mm. Then I was like, whoa. So what do you mean? She goes, nothing is permanent. So enjoy the things that if you have a swimming pool, swim in it. If it comes a time where you must let go of the house, leave it and mm. move on to something else. And I feel like if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have cultivated the friendships that I have. I think of the stuff that I do now in production. I think of the stuff that I do now in corporate. All of it is in sync with people that I enjoy being around. And that's one thing that I never had seven years ago. I always felt like a one-man band and I'd burden myself with the responsibility of fulfilling everyone's needs, whether it be the work that I do on stage or the corporate work that I used to do for the bank or the radio show. I always felt it was a burden, right? Mm. But right now I shoulder my burden. I've got a business partner in everything that I do and I love it. This is Kaya Drive with Seaswear on Kaya 959.